What were the key lessons learned for the Army from the Spanish-American War? Who was Elihu Root? And how did he transform the Army in the early 20th century? What changes took place that improved the National Guard? For answers to these questions and more Army transformational insights, stay tuned. Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army's Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds the Strategic Communications Officer for the Center of Military History. In this episode, I'm speaking with CMH historian Dr. Matt Marges about the transformational time period for the Army after the Spanish-American War and going into the First World War. Welcome, Matt, and thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me again. So Dr. Uh, Matt Marges works with the U.S. Army Center of Military History as the historian for the Office of the Chief of Staff of the Army. He's been with CMH since 2017, and prior to his current position, he worked as a researcher for the CMH Histories Division. His area of expertise is late 19th century and early 20th century military professionalization, which is exactly the focus of this episode, so we got the right guy here. He graduated with a PhD from Iowa State University in 2016. His dissertation, America's Progressive Army, how the National Guard Grew Out of Progressive Era Reforms, won the Karras Award for Outstanding Dissertation in 2017, and, and, and I think that's great. He's currently converting his dissertation into a manuscript for publication. Dr. Marges has written articles on African-American service during World War I and numerous book reviews. He recently published a chapter on consolidating gains during Operation Market Garden in an Army University Press volume, on large-scale combat operations. So great, Matt. Anything else that uh, uh, about your, your background that we need to cover? No, I think that about covers it. All right, well, great. Well, you know, <clears throat> you were with us for the last episode talking about the Spanish-American War. And uh, so now, as we begin this, um, you know, learning the lessons learned from the Spanish-American War, can you just give us an overview of, you know, what the Army looked like coming out of the war and what were those key lessons learned? Yeah, so after the main fighting in Cuba ends in August 1898 uh, and going into 1890 as the as the treaty that ends the war in, in December, it, by 1899, the, the U.S. government, the U.S. Army realizes there's a lot of a lot of problems, mm-hmm. um, particularly with logistics, supply, transportation. The mm-hmm. size of the army was mm-hmm. too small. The ability to expand the army in a systematic way uh, failed during the mobilization. The attempts were there to try to use volunteerism to fill the ranks, but that wasn't really efficient. Um, Effectiveness just kind of waned. There was no easy way to incorporate the militia into the, uh, basically the army structure. And there was this, the bigger problem was the functions of the various bureaus that were there was this constant infighting between uh, 
quartermaster corps, quartermaster department, um, the adjutant general corps, etc. All the all the kind of the bureaus that kind of drove the army. There was they, mm -hmm. they were indi somewhat independent of themselves, and there was no unifying structure to oversee that. So were they called bureaus at the time? Yeah, as they opposed were. to branches, is what we call them now. Right. They okay. were they were the different bureaus, and really. One of the other issues was the commanding general of the U.S. Army, the, the position that had existed since General Washington, mm -hmm. was somewhat ill-defined. And over the course of the 19th century, there was a lot of back and forth on whether this was like a chief of staff or if this was more of a field commander. And by 1898, uh, in the in the years after the Civil War, it became much more of a field commander type position. And it really was ineffective at, again, unifying the Army for overseas operations. Mm -hmm. So they, they basically, the war just demonstrated that something needed to happen. Right. And because at, at this point, now with the, with the success of the Spanish-American War, um, the defeat, uh, we, we defeated the uh, Philippine insurrection. Um, uh, the army has now expanded. America has expanded. And, and of course, the army is, is, is part of that. We're overseas. So, right. um, so now we're a bigger army. We have more responsibility. Um, so reforms were needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, and as you just mentioned, you know, victory mm -hmm. in the war actually provided the catalyst for those reforms. Because like now mm -hmm. we have this overseas force. How do we sustain it? How do we manage it? How do mm -hmm. we continue to to rotate soldiers mm -hmm. through everything? Everything kind of comes to play, into play. So we get a new army. Is it chief of staff or, or what's the title at the time? Well, eventually the the chief of staff will be created in 1903. But okay. uh, before that. Um, it, it really has to start with, at then, just as now, civilian control of the military, right? Mm -hmm. So this, it, it requires congressional action. Mm -hmm. It requires some kind of executive push. Mm -hmm. And it's really going to come from, it's really going to start with Elihu Root, who's going to become Secretary of War mm -hmm. in August of 1899. He's going to replace, oh. he's going to replace Russell Alger. Uh, Alger oversaw the mobilization um, and was pretty much dragged mm -hmm. through the mud for how mm -hmm. it didn't go well. Uh, so William McKinley is going to replace him with, with Root. And uh, when Theodore Roosevelt becomes president, he's going to maintain Root as the Secretary of War. So what's some background on Root? Where did he come from? What was his experience? So so he was a lawyer. Uh, he had served, uh, he was um, kind of a well-known, he, he was a federal attorney for a while in the 1870s, I think. Uh, he actually defended um, Boss Tweed in a New York oh, uh, wow. case. Mm -hmm. um, but he was not a military person. He was not. He had no military experience. He didn't work with the army. He didn't work with um, uh, the navy in any capacity. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, you know Theodore Roosevelt, who was serving in the in the military when he becomes president, right? He was mm -hmm. assistant secretary of the navy prior to mm -hmm. serving um, as prior to resigning to go fight in, the, in Cuba. Um, Root does not have that background. Root mm -hmm. was a a lawyer. He was educated. Um, but he understood bureaucracy and he mm -hmm. understood efficiency. He was a progressive. This is the this is the progressive era. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the kind of the focus of a lot of progressivism that I think gets misunderstood today when we mm -hmm. when we hear the term progressive. But it was really about middle class progressives in the eighteen eighties nineties and then in the early twentieth century. They really wanted to reform society mm -hmm. to make it effective and efficient. They, they saw this, this idea of scientific management, that mm -hmm. if you could implement kind of managerial protocols across society, you could reshape it in uh, the way that they saw as better. Mm -hmm. um, whether it was 
better or not is up for debate, but <laughs> it was how they viewed it. And so right. Root comes from that background. So mm. he believes that if you could just apply kind of a managerial scientific approach to the War Department, mm. that it would improve efficiency, improve effectiveness, and improve overall quality of the soldiers and officers. Yeah. So, um, so what was his in- innovations? What uh, what changes did he um, he implement? Yeah. So he's going to push for a handful of of changes. And again, he can't do this on his own. He needs mm-hmm. Congress to ultimately do it, and mm-hmm. it's not going to happen overnight. But what he wants to do is create a general staff uh, with a chief who would be subordinate to the Secretary of War, what we the Secretary of Army today of mm-hmm. the Army today, but uh, at the time the Secretary of War, who would basically be the chief who would, who would then oversee a centralized staff that would actually implement executive policy, mm-hmm. uh, that this would supplant the bureau system, that the bureau chiefs okay. would no longer have autonomy. They would now fall under this general staff that would answer directly to the Secretary of War, i.e. the president. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea was that, that, that by doing that, you would have a, a more efficient staff process Mm -hmm. and it would reduce the fight because a lot of what these bureaus were doing was they would you know rub elbows with senators and congressmen hey senator give the quartermaster corps some more money and they would they would write bills that would give the quartermaster so it was very much these kind of independent generals who were out uh kind of self-interested they wanted to reduce that and his his idea was that general staff would do that he believed that uh the planning was lax uh which it, it Certainly was. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, one of his reforms is going to be to establish and then grow the U.S. Army War College. Mm-hmm. Uh, he believed that the curriculum and the processes at West Point were a bit outdated mm-hmm. and that he didn't think West Point should be a, an engineering school. He wanted mm-hmm. it to be much more of a military school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he also thought it needed to be larger and it needed a larger uh, faculty. So he's going to work to expand that. He establishes now these. I, I shouldn't say established. The schools were already out there. There yeah. were there were branch schools: the cavalry school, the infantry school, mm-hmm. artillery school. Um, those already existed. Mm-hmm. But he is going to make efforts to expand those and make them much more um, manageable. Make mm-hmm. them much more effective and actually right. get them to professionalize them, them yeah. effectively. Yes, mm-hmm. and then finally, uh, he is going to push for a way. Now he's not a big fan of the National Guard. Um, mm-hmm. He he didn't think the National Guard or the militia at the time mm-hmm. was an effective force, mm-hmm. but he's going to be up against some some very strong lobbying efforts. So he right. basically will say, okay, if 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 you could if you can improve the efficiency of the guard, then let's mm-hmm. then stick with it for a while. And so one of the things they're going to do is is figure out ways to actually improve, as they sought the effectiveness of the what would become the National Guard in 1903. Right. But with him creating the general staff. Was this just something that he created, or is he basing that on a model from other countries? There, there were there were certainly models. Um, one of the key models, or one of the main ones that they would look to, was the Prussian, or by this time the German model. Mm-hmm. Uh, Germany had a general staff. Um, it didn't look exactly like the, what the U.S. one would mm-hmm. look like. Um, there had been a semblance of a general staff in the in the United States during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, France had a staff. Switzerland. Um, so there were some European kind of staff processes, and other reformers, um, particularly uh, like Colonel Emery Upton, he had gone 
uh, through Europe, and he had observed um, and, and written a book, The Armies of Europe and Asia. Uh, most of his ideas aren't going to be incorporated until after he's dead. He, he mm-hmm. commits suicide. But, but by 1900, his books that have been posthumous were released, right? Those mm-hmm. are starting to influence. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's kind of foreign ideas. But, but also he's looking at, Root is just looking at the business world. He's mm-hmm. looking at how do corporations oh, nice. function. Yeah. And they don't function by having every little piece of a, of a corporation being independent. They need yeah. a, a CEO mm-hmm. effectively. Yeah. Um, and that's what he sets out to do. Uh, but again, it's going to require congressional action. So mm-hmm. it takes some time. Um, in 1901, Congress authorizes or passes the, uh, the Army Reorganization Act. Mm-hmm. Um, this grows the size of the army, the regular army to about 65,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and it creates like this, it changes some billeting limits, like um, that you could serve in a, if you came to serve temporarily, for example, in the quartermaster corps, mm-hmm. um, it basically capped that at four years. So, oh, wow. so you couldn't be a, a line officer, serve for the quartermaster corps, get a brevet promotion to colonel, and, and be there ten years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they kind of capped that. Um, so that was like it was like baby steps. Mm-hmm. Um, it wouldn't be until 1903 that the General Staff Act is actually mm-hmm. actually passed. And who was the first chief of staff? So the first chief of staff will be Lieutenant General uh, Samuel. Baldwin Marks Young, um, and at the time, it, it, again, it was it was a little bit different than it is now. Uh, a lot of the functions, a lot of the processes weren't well defined yet. How exactly the chief of staff would look, what his role was, yeah. was not clearly defined. It was not a capstone position like it is today. Today, mm-hmm. the chief of staff, you serve, uh, there's nowhere else to go unless you yeah. become the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, once you do your four-year term as chief of staff today, that's it. You retire from the from the army. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case then. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, for some for some of the early chiefs, it was almost a, mm-hmm. a pat on the back. Congratulations! You're sixty four and a half years old. <laughs> Your mandatory retirement is in six months. You're the new chief of staff of the army. Oh, wow. uh, and six months later, they're they're out. Um, it, so it wasn't. It didn't have the kind of the prestige yeah. for those early kind of chiefs that it, it's going to develop over time. Um, and part of that was because. Congress, even in creating the general staff in 1903, was still wary of the bureaus. Mm -hmm. And they still didn't want to completely supplant the bureau system. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, again, they're they're very cozy with some of these bureau chiefs. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. so they'll they'll kind of establish a general staff of 44 total officers, uh, with the chief being, again, a, a, a general officer, um, some of them were given a third star early on, uh, like General uh, Young. Others weren't. Others stayed mm-hmm. at, at the two-star level while they were chief. Um, but it's it's really doesn't become the functioning thing that it will until a few years down the road. Some of its early successes of the staff, um, they create field, new field service regulations in 1905, 1910, 1914. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the ones that are going to make a plan for an uh, expeditionary force that's going to go to Cuba in 1906 briefly and, and come back. They're going to coordinate the relief of the San Francisco earthquake in 1906 oh, yeah. efforts. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to draw up some war plans. Uh, the Army War College actually becomes sort of a, again, this is a root reform, a root mm-hmm. creation once it's established also in 1903. It's going to become sort of a unofficial 
staff office. Uh, it's going to do oh. a lot of the planning, coordinating, mm -hmm. because, again, that bureau system is still there. So mm -hmm. they just kind of go around and mm -hmm. use the War College as sort of this unofficial capacity oh, to, to do that. Yeah. Um, it's really not going to be until Leonard Wood becomes chief of staff when... When was that? So he'll become chief of staff in uh, 19... Oh, what was the year? Um, well, this is prior to World War One. Prior to World yeah. War One, mm -hmm. uh, he will become chief of staff in 1910. Okay. And what's going to kind of happen there is again, there's there's not really a clear role, mm -hmm. and the most influential bureau chief at the time was the adjutant general, uh, mm -hmm. Major General Fred C. Ainsworth, and Ainsworth had a lot of power prior to. Mm -hmm. 1910, the, the adjutant general was really more the, the really the leader of the of the oh, staff wow. in a lot of ways. So the, mm -hmm. it was all they had a lot of power, and um, they kind of absorbed. They they handled all the all the administrative functions of of the army, mm -hmm. and Wood is going to basically starting in 1910, kind of go to go to fight with with Ainsworth. Um, oh, wow. Root is gone by this time, mm -hmm. uh, and a couple of the secretaries of war and a couple of the early chiefs of staff really didn't take much of an active role. They kind of mm -hmm. business as usual. Um, Wood is going to find, General uh, Leonard Wood is going to find his kind of kindred spirit mm -hmm. in Secretary of War Henry Stimson. Okay. Um, Stimson comes in uh, around the same time as him, and the two of them are going to see eye to eye on what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And... Basically, Wood is like I said, he's going to go to go to war with with Ainsworth, um, and there's a lot of bitter fighting, and uh, Wood is going to do some things that you kind of have to laugh at. Like he's <laughs> gonna he's gonna issue some orders out of the general staff that basically say anything the adjutant general corps does, anything the adjutant general does, we have to stamp off on it. So it was basically just a way oh. of like creating chaos for a making Ainsworth's life more difficult, yeah. um, really to try to goad him, mm. because they realize that Ainsworth has a lot of power. They realize that Ainsworth and the General General Corps has a lot of power with Congress. He one of his most influential friends is Congressman James Hay of Virginia, who just happens to be, you know, head of the Armed Services Committee. Oh wow! Um, yeah. So there's a lot of these kind of issues going on and basically Stimson and Wood goad Ainsworth into vocal insubordination. And then we'll say They're really trying to push him out. They're right trying to push him out. Yeah. And their choices are, oh, you have just now been insubordinate. You can either retire or face court martial. Um, and that's how that's how Ainsworth's career ends. So he retired. He, he retired he, he didn't call their bluff. He he retires. Uh, now he doesn't go away. Uh, he mm -hmm. just starts working behind the scenes mm -hmm. um, again with his with his very influential friends. Some of that's going to come into play in 1916. So, for example, when when the I'll talk about this a little later, but the National Defense Act of 1916 mm -hmm. actually cuts some of the staff power, um, oh. but the Secretary of War at the time decides to interpret it differently. Mm. Uh, but uh, it, but it's a it's a a back and forth. It's a bitter fight. But what Wood is able to do is. By his by the time his tenure ends in 1914, he was able to create a structure where the chief of staff has more power, mm -hmm. um, and then his successors, especially up through World War One, uh, Hugh Lennox Scott, Tasker Bliss, they're going to be 
uh, chiefs who are going to expand on that. And then mm-hmm. once the war gets going, once the once world the United States actually goes to World War One, uh, goes out to fight in World War One, the staff becomes much more important mm-hmm. because now it's now it is that coordinating effort. Right. And so the the kind of it, it really does succeed in breaking the bureau power, and then subsequent mm-hmm. national defense acts do away with the. the divergent system. Oh, wow. All right. And um, you, you mentioned also, and, and I don't want to jump away from any any of the root reforms that you think are, are important to note, um, but the National Guard went through transition also. So um, unless there's something else on, on the root reforms, um, do you want to oh, yeah. uh, talk about the National Guard changes? Absolutely. Um, so the National Guard, as I, if you think back to post-Civil War era, mm-hmm. There was no National Guard. It was the militia. Um, And the militia's reputation was not stellar. Things have to change after 1877. What happens in 1877 is the the Great Railroad Strike. And the federal government is going to send some troops in some cases. In other cases, governors are going to call their militias to quell the the strike and and to basically try to restore order in places where riots were breaking out and it does not go well for the militia uh in some cases soldiers who come from a very middle to upper class background are very hostile towards the strikers mm-hmm. and will fire without orders into crowds oh, wow. in other cases national militia soldiers who come from uh, more working class backgrounds will find solidarity with the mm-hmm. with the strikers and lower and drop their weapons and go join the strike site um wow and so it's not a good look. Mm-hmm. And officers in the militia realize that. Officers in the militia realize that our organization as a whole, this kind of national group of independent armies, really, about 48 independent little oh, mini armies yeah. um, under the control of the governor, uh, that if they want to stay around, if they want to be relevant, they need to change. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1879, they're going to create the the National Guard Association, which is made up of uh, militia officers. A lot of them start calling themselves the National Guard, trying mm-hmm. to break break the, uh, the negative connotation, and they're going to l- launch a series of reforms from within, where they're trying to improve efficiency and effectiveness. Mm-hmm. They realize what they need to do this though is congressional support, because if a state governor only gives or a state legislature only gives yeah. X amount of money to the militia, there's only so much that these officers can do to reform from mm-hmm. within. Uh, they do convince Congress to allow militia officers to start going to some of these schools. Um, they do start basically improving their own training capacities. In the 1890s, regular Army officers will go to uh, militia encampments and kind of oversee training efforts. Mm-hmm. So there are these efforts for about 30 years, 25 years, where they're trying to improve. Mm-hmm. But Congress is just... The, the final hump is the oh. big money because mm-hmm. Congress doesn't want to allocate money to these states for this purpose. Um, that's going to change after 1898. After the, the mobilization issue where there was no easy way to get the militia into the army, mm-hmm. they realized, okay, the effectiveness is just not there. And the 1792 law that they had been operating on, oh, the Militia wow. Act of 1792, just did not apply in 1902. Right. Um, so partly under uh, Root's efforts, um, mm-hmm. partly guided by the National Guard Association, um, but especially guided by a Ohio National Guard, Ohio militia general uh, named um, Charles Dick, 
who also happened to be a congressman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he replaced uh, the old, as they called him, um, he'll eventually replace the Ohio kingmaker, Mark Hanna. When he dies, uh, he'll become Senator Dick. Oh. But in 1903, he's Congressman Dick, 1902. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's going to work with Root. He's going to work with uh, the National Guard Association. He's going to work with other members of Congress, and they are going to create a bill that will become known as that the Militia Act of 1903, commonly known as the Dick Act, that will define the National Guard as the organized militia of the United States. Okay. So it takes that constitutional line and mm-hmm. says, this is now the National Guard. Mm-hmm. The organized militia of the United States is the National Guard. The old idea where every able-bodied male between 18 and 45 serves in the quote-unquote militia, mm-hmm. they're still going to be on the books. That's the unorganized militia. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, and that's actually going to be the kind of the premise for the draft law that's going to oh. come out in 1917, is that okay. everyone, every able-bodied male yeah. between 18 and 45 is, quote-unquote, in the militia. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. But they created this idea of the organized and unorganized. And they allowed, and there's going to be some changes. It's not, again, it doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. But that first move in 1903 allows the president in cases of of emergency, invasion, or insurrection, mm. to federalize the organized uh, militia for up to nine months. Now, that, that's not mm. a fix-all because it doesn't allow for overseas deployment. It, it's yeah. capped at nine months, but it's mm-hmm. a first step. Uh, states are given until 1907 to comply because they also have to meet training standards. Uh-huh. Part of what comes out of this is that there will be federal inspectors that will go to these guard regiments, mm-hmm. which is now the National Guard, and they will basically see uh, mm-hmm. what their level of readiness is. What are you training on? What mm-hmm. are you doing? What do you are you all wearing uniforms? Uh, <laughs> right. What are your weapons? Um, these types of things. And if you're not, if you don't comply, you lose your status. And a lot of governors were sort of at first like, well, what do we care? Mm-hmm. Okay, they're no longer national guards. They're still our militia. What, what do we care? Well, the money was now quadrupled and so these states are now getting a lot of extra funding Mm -hmm. as long as they maintain these up to standard Mm -hmm. um so the the money is is a part of it but even with that a lot of states are slow to develop this and by 1907 when they're all supposed to be in place i think four or five states are actually in compliance Um, and the rest are just not there yet and so in 1908 they're going to make some amendments to the dick act Mm -hmm. they're going to make some amendments to it again in 1910 they're going to make some changes to how it's implemented um and by 1910 it still looked very similar to 1903 but now most states were in compliance Mm -hmm. and uh still could still couldn't be deployed overseas without governor approval but the president Mm -hmm. could activate the militia or national guard Mm -hmm. uh for insurrection or invasion for up to a year. Um, okay. In which case they would also... Invasion um, against the United States, yes. I mean, not right. the U.S. going out and right. invading. And, and when would that change for overseas deployments? That's going to change in 1916, okay. the National Defense Act. All right. Um, and I guess the, the one other thing that the nation, what this does with the National Guard is mm-hmm. it, it also allows, if they're federalized, and this is kind of, this is one of the big things for the states, they would now be paid by the army if they're federalized. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. it, it would, um, oh, and the, it also did away with the practice of uh, electing officers. Um, a lot of militia units prior to 1900 still, not all, that was kind of going away, that was dying out. Again, those internal reforms, mm-hmm. this process was dying out, but some states still use this where officers are chosen by the soldiers. 
Uh, no kidding. And oh, wow. It was, they, they did away with that. They said that yeah. you can't do that anymore. They mm-hmm. need to be, officers need to be trained. They need to go through these schools. They need mm-hmm. to know what they're, they need to take tests to prove that they right. actually have their, wow. they actually know what they're doing. At what point, <clears throat> excuse me, was, uh, were National Guard officers um, going to the war college? So they start being allowed to go uh, after, basically right away. Uh, oh, not okay. a lot, not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, only a handful are allowed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's only so many slots. And I think okay. one or two are given to National Guard officers. And who would pay officers. for that? That would be paid for, um, getting there was kind of on their own. Oh. Uh, uh, but... Uh, they were no TDY, huh? Yeah, no TDY. Uh, but once they were there, their pay would come. They were considered on uh, federal status. Federal service, okay. Um, and, and and a thing to kind of remember is at the time, this is all tied to popular perception. Um, these reforms, especially for the National Guard, don't necessarily come just from. I mean, I've kind of been making it sound like this is. They they realize there's a need for overseas service and all this. Mm-hmm. They need to have this effectiveness, but it's really coming from from a lot of popular perceptions. Uh, the national, the militia was not used often in this role. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you actually look at, it's only a handful of times, but those handful of times are very, very public and very prominent. Right. And that's, and that's during race riots, mm-hmm. labor strikes and other, and, and similar issues or similar instances. Those are very kind of people see it. It's very, it's very visible. And when the militia performs well, it doesn't get talked about a lot. When the militia right. doesn't perform well, it's national news. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons the militia really wants to improve effectiveness. It wants to go out during labor strikes, during during race riots, and say, you know, we're professional. We're professional soldiers. We're not just a bunch of ragtag right. people. And that's what's really pushing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and by 1910, it's almost there. Now, you had the Army Reserve also <clears throat> created sometime during this time period? The reserve is going to be a bit different. The reserve Mm -hmm. is going to, in 1916, one of the other things the National Defense Act of 1916 will do is create the Reserve Officer Training Corps, ROTC. Mm -hmm. Um, The the National, or the Army Reserve, as we kind of conceive of it today, is going to be a post-World War I creation. Um, Mm -hmm. In World War I, they create the National Army, drafted troops, uh, divisions 76 and up. and that's going to be kind of what will later on become the Army Reserve. Okay. Um, but in the in nineteen in this period nineteen hundred to about nineteen seventeen, the reserve is the National Guard. But now you've mentioned the National Defense Act of nineteen sixteen a few times. Um, but also at that in nineteen sixteen, we were being threatened. Yes. From Mexico by uh, Pancho Villa, and we launched the punitive expedition in into Mexico. So a couple questions here. Was the National Defense Act a response to that, or uh, or did it come before the punitive expedition? So the the wheels were in motion, but a lot of the failures of the punitive expedition and what's going to happen with the National Guard deployment after, although that mm-hmm. National Guard deployment didn't really have much to do with the pushing of the bill. So the wheels have been in motion for some time, mm-hmm. but a lot of that is going to be sped up in 1916. Um, and, and another important part of this is, of course, by 1916, the war had right. been raging in Europe for two years. Yeah. And uh, the preparedness movement in the United States, 1915, is in mm-hmm. full swing. And so Congress is reacting to all that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there was an in- inevitability 
uh, a sense of inevitability that we may get into that war. Yeah, or at least, or at least we had to be prepared for something. And so, the National Defense Act is kind of a response to a lot of those Mm -hmm. things. But in 1916, it kind of all kind of just all comes together. And then, uh, so the 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 punitive expedition. How did the root reforms um, affect how we responded to that? So, so yeah, I I won't get into the first real test of it. It is in some ways, and I won't get into too many details Mm -hmm. of like operations there or anything but right um so tensions with mexico had been high uh francisco pancho villa raids a couple of u.s towns um they send this punitive expedition under uh now brigadier general john j pershing mm-hmm. uh who jumped over i forget how many hundreds of people mm-hmm. to get his from captain he, he gets to go to from captain to brigadier general not a <laughs> not a uh, pr- pretty pretty successful uh, promotion mm-hmm. there um and some of the reforms are are there in the sense that the the army is now you know the the general staff is now overseeing how this is going to carry out. The general mm-hmm. staff is making some of the policy decisions. Um, this the officers who go, the soldiers who go are better trained, better you know they've they've gone through these new schools. Mm-hmm. What's going to the problems that they're going to face is one. Northern Mexico is big, yeah, and you you're chasing effectively one person and his small <laughs> and his very small army mm-hmm. uh, in hostile enemy territory. Uh, another problem is technology is untested. The mm-hmm. U.S. Army hasn't had a lot of experience with planes, with radios, mm-hmm. with automobiles. Um, European armies had by this time. Americans hadn't. Uh, this is a good test for some of those and a lot of ways right. to see that, hey, our plane doesn't really t- perform that well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, it, there's a lot of those kind of tests going on, but it, it didn't really, the reforms that that Root put in place that started in 1903 or that started 1900 and went through mm-hmm. 1903-4, they're not really going to be showcased until uh, the National Guard goes to the border mm-hmm. and then again in World War in the First World War. Mm-hmm. Um, the National Guard border deployment was a specific response to the punitive expedition not capturing Via. Uh, President Wilson said, you know, what if he does it again? Yeah. Um, and so in June of 1916, about a week after the National Defense Act passes, but before it goes into effect, mm-hmm. he mobilizes the entire National Guard and sends it to the Mexican border. The entire National the Guard? The entire National Guard mm-hmm. is existed. So all 48 states and territories. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I believe, one of the, I believe Utah didn't, one, one of the states didn't have a National Guard, so that one mm-hmm. didn't go, but it was like, but 48 48, uh, so about 140,000 soldiers are going to go to the Mexican border. And they're going to find a lot of problems. They're going to find that they're not really prepared either. They're out of shape. Mm -hmm. They they do some marches and they're out of shape. They Mm -hmm. can't do it. They don't know how to fire their weapons. Um, There are new weapons in place. So the Army's adopted its early machine guns. The Army has Mm -hmm. issued the Springfield 1903 to a lot of soldiers. Um, We have aviation now. Aviation is coming into play. and they realize that a lot of these, for all the reforms the National Guard have been doing, for all the, the efforts that have been going into it, they still just weren't quite ready. Mm-hmm. So what's going to end up happening is from June 1916 till February of 1917, and some of these guard units are only there for a month, some mm-hmm. are there for two, some are there for the whole time. Um, but they go through these, like, it's basically a prolonged training exercise. Mm-hmm. And they're not training to capture Pancho Villa. They're, they're doing mock battles between, with 10,000 attackers against 5,000 entrenched defenders. Oh, wow. They're training for the kind of fight they're going to be seeing 
later in yeah. on the Western Front. My understanding is the um, uh, the reason we had so many people on the border at the time, whether it was National Guard or regular Army, was just like you're saying is is that training, that envisioning the the need uh, to deploy, but also was that show of force to the Mexicans. It was a bit, um, and I think it was at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I, I there's some debate on whether or not Woodrow Wilson how he really wanted to use this mm-hmm. massive force the border. Um, the debate is basically was was he sincere in just saying there is a, a real threat of further bandit incursions, mm-hmm. um, or was he as he's running in 1916? This is campaign season. As he's mm-hmm. running on, he kept us out of war. Was he right. actually training to go to war? Yeah. There's some debates on that. Um, but I think there was sincerity early on. Uh, but by August of 1916, it was pretty clear that there were going to be no more raids, that the, mm-hmm. that threat had, had mm-hmm. subsided. But the, the, they're still there. So it really became a training ground. It really, for- it really does. And one of the – so there's sort of two unexpected consequences, one positive, one negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the good things is that now you had a cohort of 140,000 mm-hmm. National Guard soldiers yeah. who were highly trained. Mm-hmm. Um, better trained in a lot of cases than some of their regular army counterparts and wow. certainly better trained than any volunteers who would be coming into the army in 1917. Mm-hmm. The problem is that in the National Defense Act, which I've mentioned a few times, one of the things it does for the National Guard is it creates the ability to be deployed overseas. The president can now federalize okay. the National Guard and mm-hmm. deploy it overseas. But in order to make that kind of all legally fine, they had to basically say that now if you enlist in the National Guard, you have to take two oaths. Before, you just took an oath to your state. Mm-hmm. Now you have to take an oath to your state and a second oath to the federal government. Today, mm-hmm. when you join the National Guard, they just combine that into one. Mm-hmm. But there was two separate ones. And a lot of soldiers at the border who deployed under the old 1910 law mm-hmm. were told, okay, you got to take a second oath now. And they said, no. <laughs> I don't I don't want I, – I didn't sign up. To mm-hmm. join the regular army, I signed up to join the militia. I joined mm-hmm. up to, to join the National Guard. I don't want the president to be able to send me anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to take the second oath. So wow. Secretary of War Duton Baker, after some back and forth, finally says, fine. Anybody who doesn't want to take the oath, you're discharged. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they le- so the National Guard is going to go from about 140,000 down to about 120,000 and then it's going to shrink wow. even more. A lot wow. of soldiers le- just leave. Mm-hmm. So when border duty ends, the National Guard was actually smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, but those National Guardsmen who remained, again, they were they were trained. A lot of them are going to become the kind of the cohort who's going to be some of the first soldiers to go over mm-hmm. to uh, to France. And then mm-hmm. the other ones who who aren't in those divisions will be the the trainers right. to train up people who are Makes sense. coming in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm. a, a couple other things for the National Defense Act. Those kind of and that, as I mentioned, it creates the ROTC program. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of its authors was John, James Hay, uh, the same James uh, Hay who was friends with Fred Ainsworth. Mm-hmm. So it's going to shrink the size of the general staff. And mm-hmm. it's actually written in there that it's some in some ways it can uh, strengthen the bureaus back. Oh, but wow. uh, Secretary of War Newton Baker he interprets that as basically applying administrative details to each bureau mm-hmm. as being subordinate to the to the staff. Mm-hmm. So he just so he kind of just says, "Okay, I'm going to I'm going to play this game. If you're oh, giving, fine. you know, special duties to each bureau, fine. I'm just going to say they're all subordinate to the staff and, mm-hmm. you know, chief of staff Bliss, you're still 
in charge. Yeah. Um, so the attempt to kind of undermine the staff fails. Um, it actually strengthens strengthens it. Oh well. So so by the end of this, you know, uh, February seventeen, you know, we um, uh, Zimmerman telegram that time frame comes out, and April sixth of nineteen seventeen, we declare a war on Germany. Um, so what does the army look like at that period? The army still, unfortunately, is is not quite ready. Uh, mm-hmm. The regular army was still small. Um, its authorized strength was, I think, about 115,000, but it mm-hmm. was not there. Uh, there were still only about 70,000 mm-hmm. regular duty, regular army soldiers. Right. As I mentioned, the National Guard, uh, it has 80,000. In February of 1917, 80,000 guardsmen are still federalized at the border. Uh, the other, the rest of the 120,000 have returned home. Um, a lot of them have left service. Uh, and even though they're kind of better trained than they had been before, uh, in co- kind of working through all the, it, that still leaves you with about 200,000 total soldiers mm. uh, mm-hmm. who, who actually have a, a certain modicum of, of training and expertise. Right. It's going to require millions of soldiers to fight yeah. in France. So yeah, I so think we mobilize about 4 million. It'll get up to 4 yeah. million. Yeah, 2 million will actually be mm-hmm. overseas with another 2 million waiting to go. Yeah. So it's just, it's not ready yet. It's not there yet. Um, it, it, it's going to get there, but it's going to require some, it's going to require a, a conscription act and everything else. Right. But we, we were in a much better position because of the root reforms, because Absolutely. of the National Defense Act. Those lessons learned coming out of the Spanish-American War, it, Made a difference. Absolutely, that that sets the foundation for the ability to conscript an army. Mm-hmm. That sets the foundation for the president to be able to just draft the militia, the National mm-hmm. Guard, and this is the phrasing they use to draft the National Guard into federal service. Oh wow! Uh, to to basically build up the divisional strength, mm-hmm. it allows to it allows the United States to get a force, small though it is, to France early. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to take time for the American Expeditionary Force to get ready to go. It never. It, it's the the U.S. expects to fight in 1919, mm-hmm. so their their anticipation is okay. We have a year to build an army before yeah. we're going to be. No, yeah. no one expected it to end in right. 1918. Yeah. Um, and so they had this like training system put in place that mm-hmm. they never really get to fulfill, mm-hmm. but. It, it it sets the foundation. All those root reforms set the foundation. Having the war college there as a planning mm-hmm. entity, having the staff there that establishes an intelligence section, establishes an operations planning mm-hmm. section that can actually go through and streamline all the processes. George Gathels, who I talked about last time, mm-hmm. who oversaw the comp- conclusion of the completion of the Panama Canal, he's going to be brought back in, and he's going to serve in a, in a staff position to help plan the deployments of soldiers from the United States to mm-hmm. Europe throughout wow. the war. So there's a lot of these these things that come into place. These They all kind of coalesce. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the root reforms that start in, at the turn of the century really set the foundation right. for the Army to be able to do all that. Yeah. It took about 16, 17 years. Uh, it took um, some time. But it has a, a lasting legacy. I mean, to this day, the root reforms are are – you know, may have some things may have changed, um, but they're still in place. A- absolutely, uh, the the general staff uh, again, it's changed quite yeah. a bit, and it's it's makeup and it's mm-hmm. and some of the you know some of the nuance, but but it's still there. Uh, mm-hmm. The National Guard is still the organized militia, the organized militia of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is still 
it's a key component now, the total army, um, sure. along with the, the army reserve. Yeah, and we've seen that with all the recent wars. You Absolutely. Know, I mean, you can say from Desert Shield, Desert Storm to now, um, the National Guard and the Army Reserve uh, combined have, have made up uh, at least 40 percent of, of our forces overseas. So, Absolutely. Was there anything else uh, about the root reforms um, or the transformation that, uh, that you want to address? No, I think that about, about covers it. All right. Well, great. And um, before we close, it's time for our Whoa trivia about this time period. So do you have any significant trivia you want to share? Yeah, just kind of a, a something I find comedic. Um, mm-hmm. One of the <laughs> unintended consequences, I mentioned that, that uh, oath issue, right? A lot of these National Guard soldiers saying, I'm not taking a second oath. Mm-hmm. And so they get out. And so they think, all right, I'm free and clear. I, yeah. I'm out of the, I'm out of the army. I'm out of the, I'm, well, they're still eligible for the draft. So a lot of them are going to actually be drafted mm-hmm. in 1917 and 1918 mm-hmm. uh, against their will, where maybe had they just stayed in, they would have been at least with, uh, with their right. local unit. Um, oh, wow. And so that's going to kind of be, be an is- issue. And yeah. then, and then the other one sort of less, less comical is after war, um, the judge advocate general mm. is going to declare that if you served in the regular army, your state obligation is no longer. So it's actually he's going to he's going to flip that, and the national guard is going to all but disappear in 1919, oh, wow. um, and it's got to rebuild itself. But oh, fascinating! So a lot of a lot of little interesting things that mm-hmm. come out of this. And we'll address a lot more of that in future episodes, including, I know we just briefly touched on the Mexican ex- expedition and the beginning of World War One, but we'll, we'll have separate episodes uh, in the very near future, uh, more in-depth discussions about all of those key, um, key events. So, uh, Matt, thanks so much again for your discussion and insights today. Yeah, thanks so, for having me. Yeah, um, covering the root reforms and then the Army in transition. I mean— a critical time period that really set up the army for the rest of the uh, the 20th century and into the 21st century. So Absolutely. Very important. And if anyone wants to learn more about the army in transition and the root reforms, or learn more about army history in general, I encourage you to explore our website at history.army.mil. And if you want to experience army history every day, then visit our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please join us every week on this podcast for more in-depth discussions as we cover topics from all eras of U.S. Army history, examining battles, soldier experiences, equipment, weapons, and tactics. Thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds, and until next time, we're history. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history.army.mil.